What's up, everybody? Welcome to Bomb City Locker Room Talk, and you're listening to Locker Room Hype. As always, this is James Fairchild, and this evening, I've got one of my lifelong close friends as a guest today, Mr. Ty James. What's going on, Ty? How's it going? Well, this evening, we're going to touch on some current sports news, then transition to an exclusive interview with Ty. One of the main topics that we're going to discuss tonight is... College athletes are now closer to earning profit from their name, image, and likeness. This is breaking news as of last Wednesday. It's very shocking to me because a year ago, I would have never guessed that we'd be in this position now. It was uncharted territory back then, and I never would have expected the NCAA to move towards giving college athletes their name, image, and likeness and those kind of rights. As a coach, Ty, how do you feel about this? Even though you're a high school coach, what do you think about NCAA athletes, collegiate athletes, receiving compensation and the ability to use their name, their image, and likeness to earn a profit? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. I think there's, there's different degrees to this answer. Um, you know, I'm a huge NCAA fan, you know, playing on the Xbox or PlayStation, um, and I'd love to see that come back. And I know this is kind of one of the hangups is taking care of the players. And that's why this kind of got dropped in the first place. But the other side of it, you know, I went to WT. I was a quarterback. And um, before I got injured, I, we had a lot of these conversations in the, the locker room about this topic. And at that time, players could not receive any funds. And, you know, the locker room was pretty much split. Um, you know, you had half of them that needed that money to help them and their families. Cause a lot of these young men and young women were coming from out of town and a lot of them did not come from a very good background economically. And so some of that money would be able to help those families. Coach side of me thinks, well, they're getting a free education. They're getting room, they're getting food. And in a lot of places, they're getting clothed because they're getting the athletic apparel. They're allowed to take those home, keep them. Um, so, I mean, it, to a certain degree, I think that, yes, they should be getting paid for this stuff. But um, part of me already thinks they are. Now, I'm not saying that that's a right or wrong way to do it. I'm just saying that that's the way I look at it. Um, you know, colleges make a tremendous amount of money off of bowl games, television ads. I mean, you look at the Longhorn Network. Mm -hmm. You look at the Longhorn Network, they made, uh, golly, I can't even remember the number, how many millions of dollars they just made. I think it was over $110 million or so. It's outrageous the amount of revenue that they're just generating through their network. And to think that athletes aren't receiving any of that directly is pretty wild. Right. And, and I think at a certain point, the NCAA started allowing allowances, uh, financial allowances to certain student athletes and, and things like that, you know, so that they didn't always have to eat on campus and do those things. Now, it wasn't very much. I believe it was somewhere in the ballpark of, you know, 500 bucks a month. Um, but that was a good starting point. I think they're starting to head in the right direction with that. Yeah, can you imagine last season how much money players like Joe Burrow, Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence, Tua Tagovailoa, or C.D. Lamb would have made like throughout the duration of a regular season? The revenue would have been astronomical. Well, in jersey sales alone, I saw on Barstool 
uh, the other day that they were making over $200 million off of Jersey sales. And those, those young men are, have to allow the NCAA to put their names on their back. I mean, you think about Joe Burrow, uh, you got to think thousands of jerseys were sold and he's not seeing anything from it to a certain degree. But then the other side is, well, he got a degree from LSU and prior to that he was getting an education at Ohio State. So, I mean, it's kind of a balancing act whenever you're looking at this, but it'll, it'll be interesting going forward for sure. Yeah, for sure. The new NCAA plan would let athletes make deals with like third-party endorsements, such as social media influencers, um, allowed to appear in commercials, hold paid autograph sessions, among other opportunities that fall within those guidelines. The college athletes would also be allowed to identify themselves by the school they attend and the sport they play, but would not be able to use conference logos or school logos or trademarks. That's kind of one of the stipulations that they're initially putting on this new rule. Now, it hasn't fully went into effect, but as of now, we think that next year or the year after in 2022, we could see this full-blown across the nation. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, you know, there's an interesting side conversation to this whole deal um, that I just recently became aware of through reading through articles about this topic. Um, the NFL Players Association has a big influence on this topic um, because you got to think those were former NCAA players that are now in a position of power at the highest level that are also influencing what the NCAA is doing. And so that's kind of an interesting little sidebar. How much influence does the NFLPA have on this mm-hmm. and and kind of how are they helping the direction of these younger athletes that are going to eventually come up to the NFL with them? Right. That's an interesting perspective because they do hold a lot of continuity with their voice because, you, like you said, they are former NCAA Division One, Division Two, Division Three athletes. And what they say matters because a lot of these players, not all, but, but a heavy majority do successfully make it to the next level. And it's interesting that you said that because they deserve to have that voice and that presence. Hopefully these kids can generate some type of financial stability through this likeness and receiving funds from appearing in commercials or whatnot or taking other business opportunities because it does help student athletes survive throughout those long semesters and especially when they're not receiving much help from their parents or their families when they're lower income athletes right and and you know a lot of these schools are, are now starting to require uh, students to make sure that they stay on campus for summer and, and doing their workouts. But there's a part of the year that nobody really talks about as, as far as football players are concerned, and that's the winter months. You know, if they don't make a bowl game, you know, they're not probably able to work. And during those four or five weeks, how are they able to support themselves if they're not on campus, they're not going to a bowl game? And that's where a lot of the um, conversations have come from is those players that are not getting that allowance, that monthly allowance or weekly allowance, whatever it is per their school and per the NCAA. And they're also not living on campus during that time as well. So how are they economically going to survive is one of the main questions. And that's, that goes across the board with all the sports too. It's not just football, but 
uh, with everybody else. Right. And this rule is going to benefit football the most football being, you know, one of the most popular sports in college athletics. And according to Alan Adamson, a marketing consultant and professor at New York university, he's estimated that social influencers could earn more than $200,000, $300,000 per year. So if collegiate athlete is earning a fraction of that, that's huge. And they're able to yeah. sustain apart from the university and possibly even send money back to their families, especially the lower income athletes. And, and that would be a huge uh, benefit to them moving forward. Now I found it interesting yeah. that men's basketball players at the collegiate level are less likely to be positioned to take advantage of the new rules unless they arrive on college campuses with an already intense following from having considerable well-known national success in high school, kind of like LeBron James. Um, even though he did not attend college, he grew up in Akron, Ohio, and he was a huge Ohio State fan. What if he would have went to Ohio State and this rule was in place back then? Do you think he would have benefited from this? Absolutely. You know, you got to think uh, – you know, easy comparison uh, most recently would be Zion Williams. And, um, you know, that guy, uh, we all knew about him since he was an eighth grader, dunking on AAU kids. I mean, everybody around the world is probably, if they've got ESPN on TV, has seen a clip, whether they realize it or not, of Zion dunking since the eighth grade. Exactly. And, you know, that that young man, um, and I don't have a computer in front of me. Look at his followers. But if you do it based on his followers and how much money he potentially could profit per year, he could have made Duke a lot of money. And he could also put some in his pocket and given it back to his family whenever he needed it. Because we all know that when you're in college, you're not rich. Exactly. And, and in no way, in no way do I think that um, the college students are trying to get too greedy with this. I think they just want a piece of the pie that they're currently not getting. And, if they could get it, even if it's a small piece and it's a foot in the door of getting these conversations started with getting them more money down the road, I think it'll keep a lot of kids out of trouble, keep them afloat, um, and then also benefit the school greatly still if, if you know they're getting some influencing money through social media. Right. I think it would be a really cool partnership that could grow into a nice profitable situation for the university and the individual athlete and you know the crazy thing is the nba may silence all of these endorsement changes by allowing high school players to enter the professional ranks like they used to um, without playing first in college and that eligibility rule could change as soon as the 2020 nba draft so you know it could affect these basketball players in a different way it's going to be interesting to see moving forward we know that football players, of course, are the face of a brand most of the time. And it's going to be insane to, to you know, see the data and the numbers once all this starts unfolding over time. Mm -hmm. You're exactly right. Uh, we'll be pretty interested to see, you know, even if we do finish the NBA season, what that, that draft will look like, if it'll look anything like the NFLs as well. I mean, I thought they did a good job, a little sidebar. Oh yeah, uh, I agree. Conversation. I thought the NFL did a good job with their draft. So they did do a good job. They they caught some some players and some owners and coaches and some awkward moments um, mm. on the zooms. Did you check that out? Did you see? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Titans head coach. Yep, yeah. Vrabel. 
I, his I, sons. And getting, yep, <laughs> and getting a shot of uh, Cliff Kingsbury in his multi-million dollar mansion. It was Golly. that was pretty crazy. And Jerry Jones on his yacht, and he had his as an assistant or whoever that woman was hold hold his phone up to his to his mouth to speak. It was pretty oh pretty surreal. <laughs> When you got that much money, you can have somebody hold your phone for you, I guess. But exactly. For now, I'm going to be holding mine for the foreseeable future. <laughs> yeah. You know, going back to the, the NCAA rule that could be in place with players, you know, receiving uh, profits from their likeness. And I just believe, you know, once the rule is developed and it's really structured, I feel like there has to be some type of need for an additional type of administrative staff maybe to monitor how athletes are going about um, obtaining income and utilizing the advantages of the new rule and you know more specifically build a staff of, of members at each university like compliance officers for example who can sort that layout and, and kind of help these players understand the NCAA rules but also provide staff members who can explain tax obligations and whether an increase in income could jeopardize financial aid and assistance like Pell Grants, especially for low-income athletes. There's going to be have right. some type of entity that is in place at every institution to kind of guide these young, young athletes and, and give them advice and consult with them because, let's face it, they're you know anywhere from 18 to 22 years old. They're young and impressionable, and they could make the wrong choice with what they mm -hmm. are going to do down the road. Well, and that, and that brings up an interesting conversation also is, uh, you know, there's that, uh, I think it was sports center. I believe did that 30 for 30 over, um, the NFL MLB players, uh, and NBA players that went broke. I believe the, the 30 for 30 was called broke. Um, yeah. And, you know, having financial advisors and all that stuff, for these college kids that are receiving a good amount of money, helping them plan and map their future financially at the time before they are in the professional ranks might mitigate some of these problems that we're seeing a lot of these NFL players losing all of their money. I mean, it, it baffles me to hear that these guys are signing three to $20 million deals, and a year later they turn around and have no money. Um, and, and this could be a good opportunity, a financial literacy opportunity for these college kids to learn how to manage money and to take care of themselves and not blow it all. So I think that's a great idea. Compliance officers, financial advisors, uh, whoever it may be for the school could help those young men and young women before they, uh, they get in trouble whenever they get the big bucks in the NFL, the MLB or the NBA. It's a great point, man. Because yeah, like you're you're absolutely right. These these players in the NFL, they get in a few years into their career, and they've spent all their money. They maybe get injured, and and they don't have an investment there, equity built in some type of other entity to help them survive for most of the rest of their lives. And they're they're flat on their butts, and they don't know what to do. So I do think that you know, having these financial advisors or, or, or a team of people would really mitigate that, like you said. For those of you who don't know, Ty and I have been close friends since about first grade. So our friendship spans multiple decades since we were about six, seven years old. We both went to elementary, middle school together and attended Paladero High School here in Amarillo. 
An interesting fact, Ty was once my quarterback and tossed me passes as a tight end throughout our high school days. We both have careers in education as teachers, and Ty is currently a coach. How long have you been coaching, Ty? Uh, this is my 10th year, 10th official year. 10 long years, whole decade. So full decade, full you, decade, yeah. You're coming close to completing your first year at Will Dorado as head coach and athletic director. It has been a year, I'll tell you. You know, we started the year off, um, and, and we, we had some good thoughts going into the year. We lost um, one of one of my favorite kids I've ever coached, uh, Quentin Pond. Uh, right after the first game of our year, he was our starting quarterback. That was a one of the hardest things I've ever dealt with coaching wise, um, and uh, you know, found a way to find our new normal out at Wilderado. Um, got through the season, got through football real well. Our volleyball team very successful uh, compared to the year before. Our basketball teams did significantly better. Um, everybody's doing a really good job out there, uh, and we absolutely love it. We uh, had some really good opportunities to send some kids to state for the first time in that school's history uh, in track. And unfortunately, our season got cut short because of this virus situation, but can't say enough good things about it. That's great, man. You know, a little history regarding Will Dorado. Will Dorado is located in southeast Oldham County. Inhabitants there appreciate the best of the two universes with rustic living in addition to simple access to significant city life. The fundamental avenue was the old Ozark Trail, which turned into the celebrated Route 66 that we all know and love, and in the long run offered path to the present Interstate 40. And Amarillo is currently only 15 minutes away toward the east, which is where both of us grew up. So, Ty, going into our first question, what initially fueled your passion to pursue a career in teaching and coaching? Well, uh, and you know this answer, but uh, my dad was a coach for over 30 years. Um, me and my sister, uh, we're both coaches, and I believe as a result of uh, the positive influence that my dad had on us, um, you know, growing up inside of a weight room or a gym or a coach's office, uh, was a very positive thing for me, uh, as well as my sister. And so that's, that's kind of the direction I took as a result of that, you know, it, it also didn't hurt that we had some amazing coaches from, um, Bobby Elliott in Kids Inc., uh, Joe Velasquez, Mike Smith at Sam Houston, yes, sir. Steve Parr, Steve Young, um, Tate Casey, all those guys at Paladero were amazing. And, and that kind of heavily influenced me to, you know, go down the road I always thought I would. So, the coaches that you were around your entire life, I w I had the opportunity to be around a few of those guys as well, and they really uh, influenced me for the better and pushed me to become who I am today. So I I totally can see how that pushed you and fueled your passion to pursue a career in teaching and coaching. Right, and and you know everybody has their. Uh, coach horror stories but i think uh, you know we're kind of lucky in the sense that uh you know we have some some great coaches in the amarillo area um and you know talking about what you guys talked about on a previous uh segment of y'all show is how good the teachers are inside of aisd in the surrounding area um you know we got some great teachers up here 
um, you know, I wouldn't be in the position I am if I could not have um, completed my uh, student teaching and all my testing I had to do to get out of college. And that's a huge part in thanks to uh, all the history teachers that I had, you know. So uh, who is our eighth grade teacher, Mr. Latham? Oh, yeah. Mountain man. <laughs> there you go. Mountain man. Give him a shout out to the mountain man. So, oh, yeah. but, um, you know, we had we had some great teachers, um, not just coaches, but teachers as well. And, and you know, that's where I think we're very fortunate to live where we do and, and get the type of education that we did. I agree. I agree. From a coach's perspective, what are some of the major differences individuals from the outside looking in wouldn't necessarily think about when transitioning from a large 5A school like Paladuro to Will Dorado, which is a small 1A school? Well, um, you know, one thing that was the most evident um, as soon as I got there after the, the first week of two-a-days is that, you know, at a 5A school, you can have you know, 20 receivers, 20 linemen, um, six or seven quarterbacks. Um, but at a 1A, you're going to have to develop the kids that you got. And in our situation, we had 12 football players. And whenever I tell people, yeah, we had 12 football players, we only had 13 in the school, 13 boys. Wow. So we had all but one play. Um, so we were doing a really good job recruiting our own kids to come out and play. Um, and then trying to get multiple kids to play multiple positions and develop them internally as opposed to next guy up mentality. There is no next guy up mentality in, in 1A. And, you know, I think that's helped me become a better coach. I think everything about Will Dorado has helped me become a better coach. And, uh, man, you know, these kids that we got out there, they're tough. They're disciplined. They do everything you ask them to. So it really makes my job a little bit easier. That's great, man. That I, I would assume that those kids out there are really hard-nosed and they're hardworking and they're very driven and they just got their nose to the ground and ready to work and do anything you ask. You bet. You bet. And, um, you know, an interesting topic about Will Dorado is, you know, we have a, a good transfer base. It's not all just homegrown kids, uh, you know, because we're – fairly small community. Like you said, we have about 200 in the surrounding area or the area encompassing the ISD of Will Dorado. Um, so where we get some of our kids is through transfer. And the fortunate thing about us is we get to be kind of choosy um, and pick through the ones that we think will help lift our school up in a positive way and not tear it down per, per se. So we're, we're very lucky in that sense. At Will Dorado, the student-teacher ratio of 10 to 1 is less than the Texas public school average, which is 15 to 1. How does that ratio help the athletic side of coaching? Well, uh, you're exactly right. It does help, um, except for in the fact that, uh, you know, you got, let's say we have next year we'll have somewhere around 22 kids. Um you know, at Paladuro, we had somewhere around 200 kids, but we also had 10 or 11 coaches here at Wilderado. We have two, uh, which is a good thing because we have one of the best assistant coaches in the state, should be a head football coach somewhere, uh, but he's our head basketball coach, uh, Connor Copley. does an amazing job, but uh, that ratio really helps us 
get to dive into the details because we don't have a large mass group that we have to teach. And Connor and I both get our hands on those kids on a daily basis. You know, at a larger school, you some kids might slip through the cracks, and might not be able to get to talk to them on a daily basis. Will Dorado, if you don't talk to them on a daily basis, it's because you weren't there. Um, so it's pretty interesting. Um, I get to talk to my kids every day, get to give them a hug every day, get to give them a high five every day. So that ratio really helps build relationships in a very good way. Right. I bet the relationships that you formed just from the short time you've been there have been like so impactful and, and close because of that ratio. It's so small. Mm-hmm. And uh, another thing about that ratio um, and, and kind of going back to your previous question as well, what's different between a 5A and a 1A? Uh, we have one of the best ag teachers and, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that here in a second, but we have one of the best ag teachers in the state of Texas, uh, Cody Bonds, and we have our own cattle company. Well, at Will Dorado, everybody does sports and everybody does cattle. And so finding a way to split that has been an interesting problem, but it's been a positive problem um, because, you know, an inactive student usually has some bad things going on outside of school. If they're active all the time, they don't have enough time to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're seeing out at Wilderado, a lot of these kids are just working all day, playing football, playing basketball, running track, volleyball and basketball, uh, volleyball and girls basketball. So it's it's a good problem. And the student enrollment and growth has been evident at Wilderado throughout the past few years. Um, how much are you looking forward to having your first varsity football class in the near future? Right. Yeah. So this is going to be. Uh, an interesting deal that I don't think a lot of coaches I've ever met have gone through. Um, we're basically opening up a school um, through football next year. Um, it'll be our first u- year in UIL with football. Um, we're gonna we're gonna jump into a to an interesting district. Uh, we just had realignment, um, and and our kids are really excited. You know, we do um, certain things during this this time off. Um, where we, we try and talk to each other a little bit every week and, and the kids are itching to go. We got brand new uniforms, got brand new design for our helmet decals. Everything looks really, really nice. And I, I think the kids are more than excited to get next year going. Coaching six man is something brand new for you. What might you say has been the greatest change you've needed to make as a coach coming from traditional 11 man to six man? Well, just from the X's and O's standpoint, um, I'm a pretty structured guy when it comes to um, the X's and O's. Like I, I, I like when things set each other up. Six man, and and you can talk to a lot of these six man coaches. And, and from what I've learned um, from coaching it and talking to other coaches and players, is that you know about a third to half of the plays are all improvised, and that's a frustrating thing. I mean, if you're you're coaching your heart out and your kids are playing defense and the other team has just an absolute stud. It's basically a kick return every play. If you want to think about it, cause that, that young man might be getting the ball 15 yards behind the line of scrimmage and able to find an alley and go to the house any given play. It's frustrating and it's exciting. And, and that's kind of a fun thing about six, man. That's 
also kind of a frustrating thing, especially if you like structured um, down playing football. And, you know, you know, you might have a, in 11 man, you might have a really good third and three play to go get that first down. Well, you know what your third and three play is in six man, get it to your best kid, let him run down, he'll find a lane. And, and it doesn't have to be very creative as long as you have a kid that is. And so that's kind of a unique way of looking at uh, the difference between six man and 11 man. And the amount of space that is there, you know, I'm sure it makes it almost impossible to defend when you do play against a squad that has a, a an elite stud kid that can just make anything happen when he has the ball in his hands. You're exactly right. And uh, we got a few of those kids that they're good playmakers. Um, and so we're, we're really looking forward to next year and, and what we got going. So, And UIL realignment positioned your Mustangs to compete in football this fall in District 1A, Division 2. What are you most looking mm-hmm. forward to with competing in this new district? Well, uh, you know, we have yet to uh, play any of the three teams that are in our district. We have Groom who, in my opinion, just based on the little bit of film that I've seen on them, may have a really good shot to be uh, top 10 or even top five in the state in the preseason polls in uh, Division Two. And then we've got Silverton and Hart. Silverton's got some great young kids. Um, Hart has the same thing, they're, they're, but they're a little bit bigger. Um, so it's going to be an interesting challenge for us. And, and I think we set up pretty well to be very competitive with all three um so uh we feel like we like our chances and um you know that realignment was a stressful deal i've never been through that as an ad um just as an assistant coach that just gets to sit there and watch the head coach stress out um so that that was kind of fun and stressful for me i was crunching numbers every single day you can ask our parents i was wearing them out with information on, on on which direction we could go up or down. We were very close to being division one. Um, and we would be with some powerhouses like White Deer and McLean and, and teams like that. And, um, that could have been a very, um, tough year for us, but luckily we squeaked under, I think by three or four kids. Um, and now we're division two. So I think it sets up well for the kids we have. Mm-hmm. Did you anticipate it going that way, or did you have a totally different picture of how it would uh, eventually materialize? Well, you know, and that's a good question, because the whole time I was crunching those numbers and trying to figure it out, um, the previous enrollment cutoff for Division 1 and 2 was, I believe, 11 students lower than the cutoff this year, and it's never made that big of a jump up. Um, You know, they went from, I believe, uh, somewhere around – 52 to 54 and it would jumped up to 62 i think um somewhere in that ballpark um so you know us you know falling under that little umbrella of going division two uh honestly was a little bit of a surprise um that we weren't division one just because that was a big leap by the uil to jump up that many students especially when you're considering there's only about 110 at the most that is considered a six man or one a that's interesting. What would you say is the most rewarding part of being an athletic director at a place like Wilderado? Well, 
And that's a great question because there was a few times um, my happiest moments weren't even moments I was coaching. Um, you know, we went to uh, the third or fourth round in volleyball and, and our volleyball team last year was decent. But this year, the, one, the kids we had because we recruited our own kids over the summer as soon as we got hired, they, they took it and they ran with it. And they did a great job. And I'm sitting in um, La Mesa, I believe, um, watching a girls' volleyball playoff game, and we ended up winning it. And I'm just standing off to the side watching the girls hold up a gold ball. And that's a very proud moment for me because not because I coached them, but because I have a relationship with those girls and that coach and, and, and couldn't be more proud of them. And same thing for the girls' basketball team. You know, they went a couple rounds deep and getting to see those girls hold up a, a trophy did, and they did really, really well. Uh, once again, knowing I didn't coach them, but I helped as much as I could uh, was a very positive thing for me. And it was something I didn't expect going into to this job. Yeah, that's a definitely exciting overall for your entire athletic program for them to hoist, you know, a, a trophy in your very first year. And that's a testament to the coaches that you have. And I'm, I'm excited to see you eventually hoist one of those trophies yourself. Well, that, that would be a, a dream come true, um, you know, especially uh, when it comes to football. You know, that's that's my main sport. It's a sport I've always loved. It's a sport I've always played. It's, it's the only thing I think about most days. Um, you can ask our, our assistant coach, our head basketball coach, Connor Copley. I'll, I'll be running him ragged talking about football, and it's in the middle of basketball season. I probably shouldn't do that. It's just That's just where my mind is, though. Um, and so I think next year, if, if the cards fall right and um, we play the hand we're dealt, I think there's there's a good possibility of us holding up one of those trophy and trophies in some capacity, whether it's a district championship or a, a playoff win. So that would be huge, man. Definitely. Well, we're going to move on to a couple of fun questions. The first one All with, right. with your offensive coordinator experience throughout the years, hypothetically, which college football offense would you most like to manage and why? Last year or this upcoming year? I would say last year, since we have a good overall picture of, of what went on and, and what was ran at every university. Well, I mean, you got to say LSU because the types of kids they had, you know, you, other than the quarterback. I mean, you had, um, what was his name, Hilaire? Or Hilaire uh, Ed, the, Edwards the Hilaire, back. right. He was a, yeah. And then you had yeah. then you had Jefferson on the outside who was like six five six six just a stud. You had a couple other receivers. Jamar Chase. Um, I mean, it's God. That that was a fun team to watch, and it was it came out of nowhere, and that's kind of why I would want to coach them, um, just because they were coming from the outside in. <clears throat> but I mean, looking back on it, the amount of talent they had, of course they won. And and as an offensive coordinator, the more weapons you have, the easier your job is. Um, another team. You know, and and unfortunately, he's leaving this school, but uh, might be a fun mix up in the SEC that not many people are talking about uh, would have been Washington State with Mike Leach. That type of offense you know, mm -hmm. fits my personality. Uh, deep balls, throwing, getting the ball out of your hand quick when you need to, but throwing it deep when you you want to. Uh, that's a good philosophy to live behind. And, and that's kind of a fun thing. And I'm interested to see what he'll do at Mississippi State next year. Oh, so am I, man. I am 
thrilled that he ended up in the SEC so he can turn that conference on its head and kind of implement a lot of his air raid tendencies and schemes. It's going to really diversify the SEC, and he's going to you know turn some heads pretty quick, I think. I mean, think about what he's done at a school like Washington State, um, Texas Tech, where you're not going to get the most premier athletes. And he's leading the country in passing, receiving. Um, his running back is leading, um, or at least in the top 10 in receiving uh, out of running backs every single year. So, I mean, you're at least distributing it to everybody. What's he going to do with SEC kids? Exactly. That's my question. Right. So, and Yeah, even at Tech and Washington State, he didn't, he didn't have the best talent but he made the best out of it, you know, and he, he put that scheme together so that those kids could, you know, excel at a high level. And they did. And it's going to be exciting to see what he can do with those sec athletes. Like you said, because this is a new breed of athlete that he's hasn't been able to put his hands on just yet. And with his really creative mind, it's going to be exciting to see how far that offense can, can go in the sec. And there's, I don't think there's any limits to what it can do, especially with that kind of talent. Oh, you bet. You bet. I mean, you get some of those SEC receivers. Like, you know, if you had the LSU type kids, which they may have in their system where they've got some speedsters that are 6'3 and up out at the receiver and at the slot, um, you know, it, it's just the sky's the limit for potentially leading the country in offense and possibly winning a national championship. And you know, as well as I do that pirate wants that national championship more than anybody. Oh yeah. And we'll love to hear about it too. After he, he gets to the top of the mountain, his interviews are the best. They're the greatest. I love them. I literally spend um, every Tuesday during my conference period. I'll go find his little uh, excerpt that he has and try to fast forward to the funny parts because it, it just cracks me up. <laughs> yeah. Every chance I get, I try to look on YouTube and, and see if I can find one that I hadn't watched before because he's one of the most entertaining characters in coaching that you'll ever, you know, read about or, or watch or listen to. And I know last year at Washington State, he even taught a class. And that was pretty entertaining to, to hear about. I can't imagine how many students were lining up to get in his class I think they had to write an, a, an essay to get in and get approval, and it was pretty intense. Wasn't it a history class about pirates? It was about something about warfare, and he correlated that to football. And he, oh, okay. he had another gentleman, I think, in there that would consult with him, and they had two different sides to the class, and he, he would incorporate his football into warfare, um, which was really interesting. Uh, I could see some of the principles overlapping each other, really just think now thinking about it, but it's pretty bizarre that bet. that class would even exist for students to, you know, register for and take. You bet. That'd be awesome. I'd, I'd you know, I'd spend a few grand just to sit in that class if I had it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You get his autograph, get a picture with him. A lot of those guys, they even, you know, formed a close relationship with them and still stay in contact with them to this day, which is pretty cool. That is very neat. That's special. That's something that doesn't come around very often. Yeah. All right. Our very last question. You're a former quarterback yourself. And with that being said, our listeners are dying to know who's your all-time favorite quarterback. Oh, man. Well, I have different categories because I can't 
I'm pretty indecisive whenever it comes to sports. You know, when somebody asks who's your favorite offense, I ask, well, what what are you talking about? Coordinator, player, you know. And right. in this question, it's the same. Um, you know, my favorite pre nineteen eighties quarterback has got to be Bart Starr. Okay. Uh, Bart Starr, phenomenal quarterback uh, at Green Bay. Um, tough. I mean, if you go look up a picture of Bart Starr, he plays without teeth. I know there was a few <laughs> other guys that did the same thing, but but uh, as a little kid, I got a, a little playing card, a little tops playing card. Um, my first card ever of an NFL player was Bart Starr, and his front four teeth on the top row were knocked out. And I thought that guy is awesome. I'm going to look him up, and I did, and it, it held true. He was a very good quarterback. Favorite roll time. Michael Vick, hands down. Michael Vick, I mean, the plays that he made in Atlanta and uh, even later in uh, um, Philadelphia were amazing. They were fun to watch. It was something that we hadn't really seen other than like a guy like Randall, uh, Randall Cunningham. He had a few plays every now and then. Um, but uh, Mike Vick, by far, and, and we won't get into the negative stuff about him, but as far as a running quarterback, I'd say him. Um, as far as a true passer, uh, one of my favorites uh, is still one of my favorites with a little bit of controversy currently around him is Aaron Rodgers. I uh, love Aaron Rodgers, love his consistency, love how tough he is. Um, I think he gets a bad rap in public um, because he doesn't do great with interviews, but I think he's a phenomenal guy. I think he's a great quarterback. Um, as far as leadership, I think Tom, uh, Peyton Manning, uh, Peyton Manning's leadership is second to none as far as quarterbacks. And then you got to talk about Tom Brady, who has all those Super Bowl rings as probably the greatest quarterback, just based on winning percentage. Um, so those are all the categories I go under. But I mean, it, it varies depending on the type of conversation you're having with quarterbacks with me, I guess. Right. It can go so many different directions. And depending on, you know, what type of question it is, you could get a thousand different answers, especially if you want to go into who you would choose to run your ideal offense. Heck, there's there's so many different quarterbacks that you could choose. Yeah, it, it's you want to go two back, two tight end. You probably want a guy like Lamar Jackson where you can run some read option and some dumps to those tight ends and outside receivers, which worked well for him last year. Or you want to go five wide and get Tom Brady, who's immobile and can't run out of sight in a day. <laughs> Um, it, yeah, you're exactly right. It just depends on what your philosophy is. Well, Ty, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with us tonight. I look forward to having you on future podcasts down the road. You've got a ton of knowledge and expertise that would be great for any type of conversation that we may have with Bomb City Locker Room Talk, especially on the sports side. Absolutely. And I appreciate you having me on. I think you guys are doing a heck of a job with your group sessions and then your last interview with Vaughn. Uh, one of our good buddies uh, was excellent. Just good content to listen to if you got a little bit of time and who's who's kidding each other. It's everybody's got a lot of time right now, so you might as well all listen to all the podcasts. It's it's good stuff. Thank you, man. We really appreciate it. And thank you guys for Absolutely. listening tonight. This is Bomb City Locker Room Talk, the locker room hype.